0: Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. In this episode, it's part three of my chat with Andy Gamlin and Derek Springer of the Society of Barley Engineers slash Society du Lambique about their decade spanning mixed cultured brewing project. Today, we wrap up talking about blending day choosing and how to add flavors to the beers and the key to keep a project like this running for this long. But first, a message from our sponsors.
1: Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. The Seltzer Sensation is here and our friends at Mangrove Jacks have specifically formulated their newest craft series yeast for making homebrewed hard seltzer. The Mangrove Jacks Hard Seltzer Yeast and Nutrient produces a clean, neutral flavor and aroma profile, allowing you to get creative with your hard seltzer recipe. Homebrewers can use this blend of yeast and nutrient in their own seltzer recipes, or choose from one of the new Mangrove Jacks Hard Seltzer Recipe Kits, which are Related to make up to five gallons of refreshing 4.5% seltzer. The kits come in three thirst-quenching varieties: Raspberry Breeze, Lemon and Lime Smash, and Pineapple Sunset.
0: Once again, welcome back, everybody. And remember, if you interact with any of our sponsors, please let them know that you heard about them here on The Brew Files. And it's time for part three. Is this the final part? I don't know. We'll find out, won't we? Part three of our chat about the Society of Danambique down there in San Diego County. And once again, I have Andy and I have Derek on. Guys, say Hello. 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 (laughs) So before we get into the third part of this whole talk about how you guys run a crazy dang thing, I'm going to give the super quick recap. As always, if you want all the details and all their gore, then you need to go listen to part one and two, which are available on all your finest podcast retailers and of course, www.experimentalbrew.com. So to recap, Society Dude Lambique is a side club of the Society of Barley Engineers in North County, San Diego. The project has been going strong for 20 years. Every year, the club pours 13 different mixed cultured beers at the Southern California Homebrewers Festival. There's a brew day in March with 10 to 15 brew teams. A single shared recipe, 70% two-row, 30% unmalted wheat with hops aged in Andy's attic. Batches are forced chilled, blended together for fermentation, pitched with a fresh culture of Saccharomyces cerevisiae to kickstart ferment. The strain is based on whatever is available at hand, not too important. Fermentation happens over the course of a month in full-size reused wine barrels under a pepper tree in the backyard. Barrels are kept wet year-round. Harvest day is in the early fall slash late summer, so September-October time frame. Participants, brewers, and those who commit to bringing beer to the fest sample the available beer. Everybody's enjoying beers. And then they volunteer for which beer or beers they want to take home and finish. The transfer happens via siphoning from the barrels, which again are elevated under a pepper tree by a retaining wall. Barrels are then refilled with either beer from the tote, because there's a tote involved here in addition to the three barrels, or a brand new batch of beer. The gist of what we covered in the first two episodes did have one question that came in about uh, maintenance. So when we had talked in episode two, Andy, it sounded like, if I'm remembering all of my details correctly... You guys aren't doing any specific maintenance on the barrels in terms of like emptying the barrels, cleaning them out, doing like the Cantillon thing with a sharpened chain and tumbling it. You're literally just keeping the barrels wet year to year and making sure that the beer is coming out in good stead. And if it's leaking, make sure the leaks go away.
2: Yeah, that's been our strategy. Our strategy has been to keep the barrels wet. And I think where you run into a lot of problems with barrel maintenance is if you you know, let them dry out. And then you're trying to reintroduce things in there and to try to make sure that things that are in there are the things that you really want in there. So our strategy has been to, is to keep the barrels wet. They're, they always have lambic in them. And so that way we, we lighten the load on barrel maintenance.
3: Yeah, I think you can count on one hand the number of days that the barrels have been empty in the past few years. I mean, it's it's maybe an afternoon that they don't have anything in.
0: All right, so now that's our recap of brew day and then the, uh, well, not blending day, but the harvest day. Blending day is coming up. Anything that I missed in that high-level recap uh, before we get into the the rest of the details?
2: Well, I just will say that you, you did mention that we pitch a, a fresh sack strain but we talked quite a bit about um, all the other microbes that are in the barrels. And so don't want anybody to think that um, it's just the Saccharomyces that are doing all the magic.
0: You also keep the house culture going in the barrels as well. So That's right. Also, most importantly, we do have a guard
3: cat. Uh, I believe a, a pair of guard cats now watching over the barrels uh, over the,
0: throughout the year. Always important to have a guard cat. So that gets us... The, the high level. And again, go listens to part one and part two. If you want more of the gory details, because boy, howdy, are there a lot. So we've got now, as we're standing, beer has been distributed out to people. How many different people are taking kegs of beer?
2: So there's maybe 20 or so people and, and we have, um, we're looking at uh, fifty fifty kegs, something on that order. So there's there's quite a number of different um, kegs that are filled up. Most people are filling up kegs. Some people will fill up a you know a, a carboy with some fruit already in it or something like. That. But most people are taking the kegs and then bringing it home, and then that's where they start doing things with it.
0: You said, hey, you know, some people bring carboys with fruit in them. Given that all of this beer is ultimately destined for festival, is there like a set plan? Does it, is everybody coordinating like, oh yeah, hey, I'm going to do mango. I'm going to do raspberry. I'm going to add hop. Is there a set plan or is it just kind of go off and come back and we'll find out what everybody did?
2: Well, we do have a sign up sheet so that people can see what other people are going to bring. And, but we leave it up to the uh, brewers. What we let allow them to get creative. And boy, have we seen some creative lambics over the years. And so um, I think that's worked out pretty well. These people know what other people are bringing. So we don't end up with five peshes or something like that.
3: Even within folks that choose to make, say, like if we have three folks that want to make a cherry lambic, they will be vastly different enough to the point that, you know, you would hardly even say that they're the same beer.
0: But at the same time, it's sort of the the potluck sign-up sheet so you don't get three people making potato salad. Right. Before we get into actually doing all the ingredients, Andy, you had, you had said, hey, we've got to talk about Blending Day. So tell me about Blending Day.
2: You know, after we take away all the uh, people bring home their kegs, I uh, take a few kegs that I reserve every year, and those get used for blending and for, you know, the things that we that we want to do as a club. And so I have a collection of about 25 kegs um, from various different years, also from various different barrels. And what we do for blending day is people come out, we break up into teams and we're able to sample, first in, people individually sample the beers, and then we break up into teams. And then once, once we've broken up into teams of, there'll be generally three people on a team, that team is tasked with trying to, to come up with the best goose blend they possibly can with the various different constituents. They'll generally blend uh, very small quantities of Lambics, of different Lambics, in trying to get hone in on what they're trying to achieve. And then once they do achieve something, then scale it up to a, a growler level. And then once we have each of the teams has their growler that represents their best goose that they can create, then we basically have a uh, a method of voting so we can determine which one will represent our club at the uh, festival.
3: I say this without the barest shred of hyperbole. I don't believe that there is a larger collection of American-made Lambic-style beer in the entire United States of America than in Andy's Garage right now. <laughs>
0: So that actually begs the question, you say 25 different kegs from multiple years and multiple batches and multiple barrels. Do you have room for anything else in your garage?
2: Well, I have um, a collection of 50 kegs and 25 of them are reserved for lambics, and the other 25 are reserved for all of the other creative beers that I like to create. Um, I do have other room in the garage for mountain bikes and a bunch of other things that are going on in the garage for other projects.
0: What's the oldest beer that you have in terms of the Lambics?
2: Right now, 2013 Lambic is the oldest one that I have. So
0: nine, nine years old. Yeah. Derek, to your point, the fact that you guys are able to put together a off with a bunch of different growler-sized blends speaks to exactly how much aged beer that you have on hand. Andy, how much of this beer do you hold aside? You said just a couple kegs?
2: So I usually try to go for variety. So I will, you know, sometimes I end up with more than one keg of one different batch. But usually what I try to do is I'll try to collect at least one keg from each barrel every year. So that, you know, members when we come and do that blending, they have, you know, the the maximum number of different flavors to build a blend with.
0: And how many different ones do you guys produce on that day? ish.
2: So there'll generally be three or four teams and each team will, will create, you know, one blend. And so we'll have three or four of them that will, will judge, will decide which one best represents our club. And then we'll scale that up to a full five gallons and bring it out to the festival. Right. And
0: so everybody's keeping notes, 25% of 2013, 10% of 2020, right? Something like that.
2: What we do is um, to get into the details. What we do is we we blend them by weight and we start out with, with uh we have gram scales and we start out blending in very small quantities because what happens is the things that you think might go great together, well, they don't always go as great as you think. And so you you adjust and you you, you decide how you're gonna put that all together and the teams then will discuss them and decide how to, to change them. There's only a couple of rules that go with that. One rule is that we say that we don't want more than 50% of any one given uh, keg. I think it's we're expecting to get a blend out of it and also we want to make sure that we have enough uh, to blend it all the way up to a, f- a full five gallon keg. And so if you know you require 75% of a keg and there's only 50% there, then obviously we won't we won't get there. So that's one rule. And then the other rule is you can blend with up to five different constituents. You know, you don't really need more than five. Once you get to that point, you're kind of making small small adjustments on on, on the beer. So we feel like five is enough for for anybody to, to get a, a real good high quality goose.
0: I mean, that's kind of equivalent to the rules that I have about the number of malts you have in a beer, right? Don't go overboard and put 900 malts in because eventually you're not going to taste them. And all you're doing is adding complexity to your shopping day.
2: Yeah, I think that's, I think you'd be surprised. I mean, when you blend these together, you know, you blend the first few ones together and you can really blend in quite a bit of complexity. And what we like about blending is that you can create something that you couldn't create on a, on a, on a single batch. So you've added this complexity in, in, in there. You've blended it to taste so that you've actually honed it in on what you, you know, want to, to achieve out of that beer. So there's a lot of really good reasons to blend and 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 frankly i'm surprised that even with uh, clean beers i'm surprised people don't do it more often
0: i think you're just looking at the labor and and people's uh, people's desires to constantly brew new things and then also just the trickiness of actually managing the blend we've talked a little bit about blending in the past but i think when you're getting into mixed culture and sour beer type production blending is a requirement it's yeah at least if you want to move beyond, hey, that's interesting, into something that's world-class. Because I don't think any one mixed culture fermentation is going to get there perfectly.
2: Yeah, we've had some really good single batch beers that we will. That's a great Lambic. And some, some of the classic Lambics that are served as still Lambic straight out of the barrel can be can be quite good. But they do, as you mentioned, uh, lack uh, some of the complexity that you get with a real good high-quality goose.
0: Now, do you guys ever intentionally have like a an acid keg? Where you have one that you hold on to that's really acidic, so you can bump up any sort of acid levels. Or
2: we do try to have a, ver- a very a variety of different kegs. We have had some kegs where they're much more acidic than other kegs, and we've had uh, in in the past had some kegs where some things that you might think as being off flavors, but in in uh, very small quantities, they can actually add complexity to the beer, and so. Sometimes we hang on to those things. Sure, absolutely.
0: Who is the Blend Master Supreme? Is there one?
3: Yeah, I think Lauren Reese uh, usually ends up taking the medal every year. She's something of a super taster. But also, she just has really good taste. <laughs> I think it's probably in the last three or four years running, her blend or the team that she was on ended up winning our little uh, competition.
0: It's kind of like when you see people doing wine blending or like when Firestone Walker does their thing. When you're doing these blends it does really require somebody who's got got the nose.
2: Right. So uh, good, good to see that you guys do have a super taster on board. It's good that you mentioned Firestone Walker because we did sort of model this program off of their blending process. And so that whole idea about being able to bring people in and separate separating them into teams and having them create their, you know, their special blends. We've, we've basically done something very similar to that, but with uh, sour beers.
0: For listeners who aren't aware, what we're referencing is Firestone Walker when they do their annual anniversary beer. That's exactly what they do. Matt Brendelson brings in usually actually local winemakers. Uh, so local vintners from around the Paso Robles area to go and taste the various constituent beers that he has. And then they they all kind of come together and vote on a blend. So And that's what ends up being the anniversary beer every year. When does
2: blending day happen? So we usually do that in January. I guess it just to keep it separate from a lot of the other events that are that are happening and it gives us plenty of time between then and, you know, and the festival to blend up the final batch. That gives you about
0: 3 months depending on when you do it. Right. When you guys do that blend in the growlers, are you that day generating the new blend or do you wait?
2: Because the day gets pretty long. so usually we we do it as a follow on to, to blend it up. But the whole idea is that when this is blended, it's all blended by weight. And so we have, we can say this is, you know, 20% of this barrel 22, 20, you know, 15% of, you know, barrel uh, 31, you know, so we have the formula. And so then we can blend that up into a full keg and we'll be right on where the, the flavor profile is supposed to be for that blend.
3: We mentioned we're the barley engineers, right? Mm-hmm. We we keep uh, very rigorous records and really good measurements of the day. Basically, until we run out of the keg, we can continue to replicate that blend indefinitely.
0: Ain't math fantastic? I guess this will go into the into the later conversation about the packaging. But since you guys are so focused on preventing as much oxidation as possible. When you're doing this transfer and making these blends, you know, okay, so you got a scale with a keg, I'm assuming target keg, you got a scale on there and you're weighing out whatever, you know, uh, you know, X number of grams of this, X number of grams of that. How are you guys doing that transfer? Is it just like CO2 jumpers or a jumper line from one keg to the next and some CO2 on there and then just letting it run
2: or? So when we're blending for that blending day, we're not worried about it because we're going to consume everything right there. But when we blend up the keg, then we'll use that the process where you start with a uh, keg that's that's filled with sanitizer, blow all the sanitizer out so that it's filled with CO2 and then basically fill it up from the ground up with a lambic. And so that way we, you know, we're, we're not we're insured, ensuring that we're not pulling in oxygen.
0: And, like I said, you got the, the keg up on a scale, so you can actually see like what the
2: weight is that you're putting in right exactly. that's exactly it, so you just you do it all by weight on a scale, and then you know what you can get the percentages right, you can get the the volume you know you'll know what the volume needs to be in in the keg in total so um it's really easy to work you're working by weight
3: yeah when when we're measuring out the units kind of the day of we usually do you know like 50 grams of this 40 grams of that and you know the great thing about the metric system is that when you want to scale it up you just add a digit to the end of it
0: i know we'll talk more about packaging here in a moment but given that this is one of the kegs that is directly under y'all's control when it comes time to okay you got the keg, you got the blend in the keg now what are you guys doing for carbonation? Force carb? Or are you trying to keg prime or are you serving this still?
2: No, for the things that we serve at the festival, we're, we're using force carb for those. For other ones, I guess we're going to talk about this later, but when we pack the bottles, then that's where we're using some natural carbonation. So we're going through a secondary fermentation in the bottle.
0: Well, and the good thing with doing the force carb, even though that's going to be less traditional in a lot of ways, although, as you said, bottles are different. Doing the force carb in the keg also means that you can transport the kegs to festival without making them murky. All right. So anything else we need to talk about on about Blending Day and packaging up the, the club goos?
2: No, I think we've just about covered it.
0: All right. And so that's in January for service in May, late April, early May. The other 25 or 50 portions have gone out across the North County you said, okay, we got people to do a potluck sign up sheet. I wanna do I wanna do a creek, I wanna do a frambois. I think the last time we talked about somebody doing a banana. And we've talked about other additions as well. Let's talk about those other finishing treatments and how they get applied and what people have done with them. Obvious place to my mind to start with before we even get into the fruit is any sort of additional microbial material. Is Anybody like going and tossing an additional Brett and some food to change a character? Or is everybody playing it straight with what comes out of the culture that you guys have?
2: I would say most people are are just using it straight up there and then adding fruit to it. Um, I don't know, Derek, if you know of anyone that is adding other microbes afterwards.
3: I want to say anecdotally, I feel like I know of some folks that have tried adding this or that. I think for the most part what we're getting out of the barrels is already pretty interesting because you're you're kind of hot blending it, right? And so what you end up getting is it's something interesting that you think you can do something with. And at that point, mostly we're thinking about how we can finish it versus kind of age it more or you know like add more complexity to it. Yeah, but by the time we take it home, We're just thinking, like, how can we finish this and create, you know, something a a little extra unique from it?
0: So then let's get into the one that I think everybody expects because we've been talking about it, fruit. Uh, you got your classic flavors, your frambois, your creek, you know, those sorts of things. How are people putting the fruit character in there? I know you'd said, hey, you know, some people show up to the harvest day with a carboy already filled with fruit. Are most people using just like a fruit puree, or are they doing frozen fruit or fresh fruit, and the, they're prepping it themselves? What are, What are people doing?
2: I can tell you what my preference has been. My preference has been to use frozen fruit because I find that you get better flavors with it. That that fruit can be picked when it's fully ripened. You know, there's a lot of discussion about how freezing the fruit also uh, tends to break open the uh, the cells and makes it makes it more accessible so I've had very good results with frozen fruit. So that's sort of my go-to, but other people do are using different things. Some people have some fresh fruit in their backyard that they can use. And um, some people have other sources for for using fruit. And yeah, that's pretty much what the way that I've been doing it. And, I, and the one thing that I can tell you about um, what I've been impressed with with our members is how creative they've been on this fruiting process. It's almost like we've, We've given you a keg, you're bringing it home and it's almost like they're in competition with each other to create something that's even more unique than than the last person. And so we got all kinds of wild things. You know, like you said, the banana lambic, we've had dragon fruit r- lambic, all kinds of different. Uh, I think we had a cucumber lambic one, one year, which was actually quite tasty. If you've ever had cucumber water, you probably know what I'm talking about.
0: Cucumber always carries a nice... Well, actually, a simultaneous freshness and bitterness that I think is actually wonderful.
2: I actually don't think
3: I've ever been disappointed by a cucumber, generally, in any format.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, and I do think one of the one of the things I love about living here in Southern California, me being up here in LA, you guys being down there in San Diego, we are an embarrassment of riches in terms of produce. Between the fact that look, I've got two avocado trees a persimmon tree a lemon tree an orange tree and a lime tree in my backyard and that's not unusual along with all the other stuff that we get to see around here yeah there's there's a lot of opportunity for people to play andy you would said okay frozen fruit you that's the way that you like to do it obviously you can go and buy bags of frozen fruit but one of the other fun things is to go and hand process fruit and then freeze it yourselves are you guys doing that as well
2: different uh members are doing different things one of our one of the the my favorite lambics is one that's done with guava uh, one of our members Jeremy Jerome he has a neighbor that has a guava tree that's revered by our club because he brings this uh, guava lambic every year and he takes that fruit from that guava tree and he uses that to create what he calls a guava. that's the name of the <laughs> of the lambic that he that he brings out. Like I said, different people are doing different things to to create their lambics and trying to get as creative as they can. Has there ever been one that didn't work? I don't know, Derek, have you ever had one that I'm trying to think of if I've ever had any that didn't work. Some fruits work better than others. Some of them don't have a lot of flavor to them. I guess I would stay away from ones that are, that are very acidic. And so if you have like, um, if you wanted to use, lemons or lime or something like that. I think it might be more difficult to do that. Maybe stick with the more with the zest and with the um, actual juice from the, from them.
3: Yeah. I think the only one from my personal experience that I was disappointed in is I, I tried to do a persimmon lambic and it just ended up being a really nice lambic beer, but I, you You couldn't identify the persimmon in it at all. I think it was just too delicate of a flavor.
0: There are some of those flavors, like strawberry. Strawberry is a classic one to me. Strawberry is super hard to get into a beer and get to preserve uh, for more than like a week. And so, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if persimmon falls into that same world.
3: Yeah, uh, persimmon is one of those fruits that I could be eating a persimmon And I couldn't tell you what it tastes like. Yeah, I think
0: having a bolder fruit is really helpful. (laughs) I'll I'll tell you what persimmon tastes like to me. A lot of cleanup work because they drop on my backyard.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You you know, Derek, I think that's a really good point because uh, you have quite a bit of lambic uh, character and flavors in this beer. And so if you have something that's really delicate, like a strawberry or maybe even a persimmon, They don't tend to come through as well. And I've made a really good strawberry beer before, but it was on a very light base. Didn't have a whole lot of competing flavors. And then the strawberries are able to come out. But I I agree, it probably wouldn't make a great Lambic uh, because there's so many other things going on. It would just, the flavor would get swamped.
0: Well, and that's actually an interesting question. Has anybody ever taken, like say, a half a keg of the Lambic and then blended back a a non-mixed cultured uh, base beer to sort of soften up those Lambic characters so that maybe they could get something else going, like a more subtle fruit.
3: Yeah, I've actually gone further than that. I made a... Have you made a Lambic seltzer? No. I made a hibiscus mead uh, a few years ago that I actually ended up blending with a Lambic that I had made. I don't even know what you would call that, <laughs> but I do remember I served some of it to Ken Schram at HomebrewCon, and he—I don't know if he was being polite, but he seemed pretty enthusiastic about it.
0: <laughs> well, hey, Lambic bragged. It. It's not your not your typical thing, right? I do like that. And actually, so speaking of which, you know, we know HomebrewCon is coming back to town and country in San Diego next year. Will the Society do Lambic be, be making a, an appearance there?
2: Yes. We will be there in all our glory. So we will have Society to Lambique and we will have Society of Barley Engineers there. Very much like what you see at the uh, Homebrew Festival, but now instead of sharing just with all of California, we'll be sharing with you know nationwide with a lot of clubs from from different places. So we're very, very much looking forward to that.
3: We had actually geared up for homebrew con was supposed to be in San Diego. Two years ago, I believe, last year. So we had actually started gearing up production in preparation for that. So we we actually have a pretty extensive
0: backlog at this point. (laughs) Please come drink our Lambic. All right, well, continuing on with the flavor and discussion. So fruit's the big one. I think you said, what, 13 taps of Lambic? So one of those taps is going to be the goose. How many of those remaining taps are fruited Lambics?
2: I would say almost all of them. Sometimes there's another tap that will be maybe a straight Lambic or even another goose, but almost people like the idea of bringing it home and, and fruiting it, making something real creative. And so we generally have, you know, the goose on tap and then the rest of them are fruited lambics.
0: Does anybody do anything with like, say different sugars or
2: other sorts of additions? I haven't seen that too much. I don't know, Derek, have you, do you recall anything with uh, any other additions other than just fruit?
3: Yeah, I've I've personally experimented with coconut sugar. It was not something that I was willing to share with the rest of the club. Let me put it that way.
0: <laughs> Has anybody done, like, say, a dry hopped version? I mean, you're in San Diego.
2: I haven't seen that. and I know a lot of people talk about, you know, sours and hops not mixing, but I think there might be dry hopping it. I think there might be an opportunity to, to make something there that could be quite interesting.
0: Well, I think if you had... One of the portions that was more bread forward and not necessarily sour, you can make some. You could make something very interesting with dry hops. Uh, I do know there are a couple of commercial dry hopped mixed culture beers out there, and people are, of course, guys kind of just Jester King, this and this and that and the other from these guys. So feel free to leave your suggestions. But yeah, I have to say I'm kind of surprised you guys are IPA town. I would suspect hops would just be everywhere.
2: Well, maybe that's a challenge to uh, put out to our club and say, hey, Drew's wondering why we don't have any uh, uh, dry hopped, uh, you know, lambics on, on, on tap here. So um, if you're going to be at the festival, if I put that challenge out there, if you're going to be at the festival, there'll probably be one there.
3: I think the lesson that we've learned over the last few years with the uh, hazy IPAs is that you can get a lot of real good hop character and not really punch up the bitterness. I think maybe if we apply some of those techniques from hazy IPAs, we can get that real good hop character and not create that kind of curious, sour, bitter hybrid that is a bit of a developed taste.
0: What's the oddest thing that you guys have seen people doing for flavoring other than banana?
2: Well, we've had some pretty outrageous ones. I think the one that I think we discussed maybe in the first episode was the uh, Poblano Lambic. Right, the the one that was in the ballast point. That one was a result. Well, started out with uh, because it came out of the ballast point victory at Sea Barrel, which for those of you that that know what that is, that's a uh, it's a it's an imperial stout, a very good imperial stout. And the interesting thing is that you know with the coffee additions in there, you would think maybe you're going to get coffee flavors, but to me, it tasted more like pepper. Uh, sometimes coffee can taste sort of pep- peppery. And so it had a pepper flavor to it. And so I I thought I would just play off of that and add some uh, Poblano to it and made a a Poblano uh, lambic that showed up at the festival, which I think was pretty unique.
0: As we think about additions and flavorings, to Derek's point, you are the Society of Barley Engineers and so very mathematically minded. What sort of guidance do you give people about doing their flavoring additions?
2: Well, I think we've given them some of our experience. We, we try not to, to tell people how they should do it, but we tell them more about, uh, we share, I think, what has worked. And I think when people share their Lambic uh, with the club and they say, look, this is how I fruited it, it kind of in- inspires people or gives them some reinforcement about which methods seem to work real well. We don't tell them that they should use this method or that method. But um, when you start seeing, you know, Lambics that are coming out that people have done and they're, we're sharing, of course, the methods that we use, then I think members are picking up some of the best techniques.
3: I think we have the pretty rare benefit as a club that we we're all coming from the same base. So we all knew where we came from. And when someone tries X, Y, or Z, we, we more or less have a control that we can compare it to. So if something is really good, we know, okay, well, if we have you know, this base, we can do that, and it turns out really good, or you know, maybe it turns out really bad, and so we know, okay, don't do that. But because we are all coming from the same place with the same base, we actually can make some pretty good lessons learned from that and share and, and move that on to the next year.
0: So just to throw out some numbers out there, let's just talk cherry and, and uh, raspberry. So, how much cherry are you adding?
2: My experience has been that, and cherry is a is a is a stronger flavor. So, some of the the uh, flavors that are not so strong, you really have to put a lot more flavor in the in there. I would say at least a pound per gallon for cherries, but I think some of the ones that we've that we've had that have been the most revered ones in our club have been more in the range of one and a half pounds uh, per gallon of fruit cherries, for example.
0: I'm guessing raspberry would be somewhere in that same territory because raspberry is also a very strong fruit.
2: Right. That's right.
0: If you have a a fruit that is notoriously soft, so like take uh, apricots, for instance, I usually think of apricots as being relatively soft, at least in terms of getting beer flavor out of them. Like how much would you say for something like that?
2: Yes, yeah, so you could get to two pounds per gallon or, or even higher than that on, on some of those fruits.
3: My secret technique in that regard is I, I like to use dried
0: fruit for really subtle flavors just because it's more concentrated. I've been an advocate of dried apricots for a long time.
3: Right. Actually, I think I learned that technique from you. When you're looking to add peach character to something, add a dried apricot.
0: <laughs> it works like a charm. Uh, unsulfured is better because uh, no sulfur. And of course, they look ugly, but who cares? You're drinking them. Also looking at other sort of flavor notes. When you guys are thinking about sweetness, acidity, any sort of bitterness to it, what sort of guidelines are you thinking about in that in terms of like how sweet do you want the beer to end up being? Because you know, in Lambic, we've got all sorts of things, right? You go from things like Cantillon, which is bone dry and basically no sugar left, all the way up to liquid jolly ranchers like Lindemans. So what are you guys typically looking for?
2: That's a great question. Generally, we're recommending that people ferment their fruits out and so we're not ending up with things that are like the kind of the Lindemans kind of sweeter lambics we don't tell people they not to do that but when people ask for advice from people that are making lambics in our club generally the advice is to let the fruit ferment out and so that way it ends up being being a drier finish than what you would get in you know so so, so for example in those Lindemans
0: no, not that there's anything wrong with the Linemans; they serve their purpose, but they're not my first choice.
3: Anecdotally, uh, I would say some of those sweeter lambics that we've had usually end up being the first ones to kick. So uh, I don't know; someone likes them. <laughs> I mean,
1: it's, not, I mean,
0: it's not a surprise. I mean, and then in terms of acidity, you guys—it sounds like no, nobody's really doing sort of any post hoc acid additions in order to like make for a more acidic beer, right?
2: No, I think it's more about sometimes you select from the from the barrels based on what you're going to do with it. I think if you're going to use if you're going to use a fruit that has a, a high level of acidity to it, you might want to start with a base that's softer because otherwise you're you know if you've got already have quite a bit of acidity and then you add quite a bit of fruit to it, you can get to the point where it's puckeringly uh, sour, and that's Generally not what we like to see in the in in the lambics.
0: And then we had talked with the Goose. The kegs that are there at fest are force carved, and I'm going to guess that you're well. You're typically going for a very spritzy service. Lots of bubbles in the lambic, or
2: yeah it's not probably when it's on draft it's not going to be as spritzy as it is when it's coming when we bottle it so the lambics that we bottled we typically bottle at four volumes so it's pretty pretty spritzy pretty spritzy lambic and it gives you that nice you know champagne type of uh serving but generally when it's served at a festival we're dialing that down and so the um the carbonation level is, is lower. The flavor is still there, but the carbonation level is lower.
0: I know you guys have a separate bar for service. And Andy, you had referenced that you have 50 kegs and you reserve half of them for the sour beers. Do you guys have any concerns about mixed culture and packaging in terms of like gaskets and lines and, and all that sort of fun stuff? Do you advise people to keep kegs off to the side for just this? Or do you, do you advise people, no, you can do it, but replace
2: all the plastic? It certainly makes it easier if you keep them separate. And so the, my, my keg collection, I have 25 pin locks and 25 ball locks, roughly. I mean, I don't even have an exact count on how many kegs I own, but, um, I use the pin lock ones for all the lambics and I use the ball lock ones for everything else. And so that's just how I've done it. And uh, there, there's a few other members that have done the same sort of thing. I have, though, used kegs you know, that have served lambic, I've used those for a clean beers before. And I think you have to be very diligent about cleaning, you don't necessarily have to throw away all of the, you know, the gaskets and things like that. But you have to be very diligent about about cleaning uh, everything that you do. So I wouldn't say if you, you can't do any of this, I would just say, your level of care needs to be a little bit greater.
0: Yeah. If there's ever a time to be fastidious, it's then. And, and me being the paranoid sort of person I am, I I'd, I'd just go and replace the gaskets anyway. <laughs> Far cheaper than losing a batch of beer.
2: You know, if you were operating a professional brewery, you, would, you wouldn't even think twice about it. And so, you know, as home brewers, we sometimes were able to take a risk on something because, well, you know, what's the worst that can happen? I've got a, a great beer that now turns into a, uh, you know, a, a Lambic and it's not the end of the world. Yeah. I've been to some beer bars. I've had that problem
0: too. No, you guys had referenced just briefly bottling. So, under what conditions do you guys bottle, and how do you do that?
2: So, we like to bottle lambics for our club for our club members, and we use them for giveaways. We use them for for a number of different purposes. Sometimes we've used them when people uh, um, join as a as a member. Then we'll it'll be it makes a nice membership gift. So you're going you to ask about the process for that. So what we normally do is we'll use lambic bottles. We have a, a, a corker and we'll, we'll add sugar, bottling sugar, so that we can get to four volumes of CO2. So we have a nice spritzy lambic. It's something that works well in the bottle. It's much more difficult to do that on a, on a, on a draft system. If what we're bottling is just come off of a, a fermentation. So if, for example, we had added the fruit to it and it's just finished up on the fruit then we could go directly into bottling. But if it's been sort of aged, uh, been around for a while, or if we're concerned about the health of the yeast, we'll add some some fresh yeast at bottling. So it sort of depends on what our thought process is and how well that fermentation will happen in the bottle, whether we add uh, some fresh yeast or not.
0: And of course, uh, Lambic generally holds pretty well in bottle anyway. So you got a good long store of gifts to give to people. Now, before we close up the whole visit with the society to land and this whole project, is there anything else
2: that we haven't covered? I just want to say one thing about just cause you mentioned bottling. My experience has been that the uh, bottled versions hold up better than the kegged versions. Yeah. I think it's just because when you've got all the oxygen out of there, when it's gone through that second fermentation, you've got some yeast and other microbes that are still in the bottom there that are able to help scavenge uh, any oxygen that gets in. And so um, it seems to be a great way for us to hold on to lambic for you know longer periods of time. Two questions to
0: close us out and let you guys get on with your Saturday. Now, when you started doing this project 20 some odd years ago, and when I first started learning how to do lambics and mixed cultured fermentations, it was really kind of more of an art than a science, you know, and there was some, you know, like, Oh, Hey, you know, here's some stuff you need to know about the microbes, but there wasn't a lot of hardcore study behind it. Now over, I would say about the last eight years or so, that's kind of changed where now we have all of these resources available to us, like, you know, the milk, the funk wiki. And I've had the, I've had those guys on here before to talk about it. it has the newly available research that, that is now publicly available. Has that caused anything to change in what your process is that you're doing? Or are you guys in the mode of, we've done this this way now, it works pretty dang well. We'd have to really think about changing something.
2: We're probably closer to that second mode where, you know, what we're creating is we've, we've got our own set of traditions now. We think we've got it to the point where, we're, where we're, what we're producing is pretty darn good. It's not that we haven't made some adjustments. And so there are, you know, little adjustments that have been made over time uh, here and there to try to dial things, you know, to get to where we want them to be pretty much uh, where we're, you know, we're aware of a lot of the, the research that's been going on, a lot of the information that's, that, that's come out. I think there's a lot of different ways to make mixed culture beers and there's not really a right way or a wrong way. And sometimes the um, Lambic breweries, they'll get to something that works for them. That's a traditional lambic. And then when they get those processes and they work they're they know what works for them, even though they may not know, you know, what happens if I do this and what happens if I do that. And we're kind of, I think a little bit in that boat where we, where we have something where we're saying that this is what we're producing. We think is outstanding uh, mixed culture beer. We want to continue to produce, produce this in the way that we're doing it we may um you know pick up a, a few things here and there to adjust things but we're probably not going to see any major changes to what we're what we're doing
0: you've scientifically decided where the art lies and what to pick up and what to leave and right now it's mostly like don't breathe
3: we actually have world class yeast scientists in our club i think they enjoy kind of the wildness most of all right <laughs> So I, I think they don't let us go too far off the reservation. But at the same time, they love the fact that they don't necessarily know what's going to happen.
0: So my last question, how have you guys kept this project going for this long?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, you have to have, it, it comes down to organization. You know, there's there's a lot of great brewers in our club. But you need to have great brewers and you also need to have you know, somebody that's going to, that's willing to organize around it to make it happen. If you want something like this to happen, uh, you would be surprised how many people are willing to pitch in and to handle certain aspects of it. But if there's not one person that's going to take it on and with a project like this and say, yeah, I'll own that. I'll make sure that it happens. Then you do risk that, you know, that it doesn't happen from year to year. And I'm proud of, of the fact that even during COVID, we figured out a way to do it, to, to brew Lambic in a safe way. We ended up, you know, people brew, brewing at home and bringing them in and and adding or filling the barrels, you know, sort of one person at a time. And, you know, as so we figured out how to make it going even during COVID. And I feel like if we can get through that, I feel like there's probably really not too many obstacles we can't get through.
0: So I mean it helps to have then a strong hand that has full buy-in and make sure the process stays going which I mean correct me if I'm wrong but I mean Andy that that feels like that's pretty much you right like you you're you're the project manager
2: I'm the project manager for this one I've I've taken this one on and 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 made it happen but I got to say that there have been a lot of people in our club that have taken on certain aspects of of it that have made this a lot easier to, you know, to happen. The fine art of delegation.
3: One thing our club really tries to do is instill the fact that like, listen, if you guys want something to happen, y'all got to do it. We specifically tell them like, hey, you know, we can, we can set it up for you or, you know, like tee it up for you, but y'all have to be the ones that knock it off. And so when we tell them that like, hey, we need someone to do this and take charge of it, I feel like we probably have a hundred percent success rate with someone volunteering take ownership of it. You know, maybe they don't necessarily like conceive of the plan themselves, but we tell them, hey, this is a thing that we can do if someone takes ownership of it, and you know, someone always
0: steps up. The one I always do in the club is I'll have people come to us with an idea. And my response to that is almost always, that's a great idea. How can I help you make it happen?
2: That's perfect. That's perfect, Drew. So I will say another thing that has been really inspiring for us on this project is just ha- all the feedback that we've received from people that we were able to share these beers with. And so because it's been such an over- overwhelming success, I think that drives people to want to be a part of it too. So I guess if you're thinking about working on a project, whether it's lambics or whether you want to get um, your club working on a you know, barrel project to do imperial stouts or something like that, getting uh, to a place where you can bring it out and share it with people that can get really excited about the end product, I think can be really inspiring for participation.
0: You remember when I used to do the champagne beers, right? Oh, the fruits yeah. That was the same thing. We loved doing that just for, if nothing else, the reaction that we got of it. And the only thing that ended up sidelining the project was we couldn't find the dang magnums anymore. And it turns out if you try and reuse champagne magnums too many times, they blow up. Gents, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time over the course of three episodes to go through all this nonsense. And somehow, yet, even though we've spent three episodes talking about the society to lay back and running a project like this, I feel like we've only barely scratched the surface. To the listeners out there, if there are things that we have not covered, if there are questions that you have, you know how to get us a question. Podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can send me a message on Facebook, on Instagram, anywhere, and I will make sure that we get those questions answered. Because again, like I said, despite spending three episodes talking about all this, there's more to talk about. Andy, Derek, thank you so much. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Drew. It's been great. Thank you everyone for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope you enjoyed this final piece of how the Society Dulambic runs their mixed cultured fermentation project over the decades. As I said, I know, over the past 130-ish minutes, we've just scratched the surface. So if you want more details, send us a question. Podcast at and, and tell us about any cool big club projects you know of or are involved in. Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at Denny at Experimental Brew.com or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at XP Marine, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us on www.experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts, click the AHA or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a book or two or more to our journal cause which for this part of the year is almost decided until next time. Remember the brew is out there and we'll see you on the next episode of the brew files.
1: This episode is brought to you by the American homebrewers association. The AHA wants to remind you that the great American beer festival returns to Denver this October 6th through 8th. And if you want pre-sale access to the hottest beer festival in the U.S., you're going to need to be an AHA member. June 28th is the deadline to join the American Homebrewers Association to receive a pre-sale code, a $10 discount on all general session tickets, access to the members-only Saturday afternoon tickets, and first access to paired tickets. Don't delay. Visit homebrewersassociation.org experimental to get access to the hottest beer fest in the U.S.